0: If you've been here at Village for some time, you know that we have been on quite a journey uh, through the book of Acts. Uh, this morning we are finding ourselves in Acts chapter 23, uh, verses 12 to 35. And as I was thinking, okay, how, how do you intro into a message where you've been working through a, a book that's mainly a bunch of stories that have uh, worked together? And, you know, the important thing, I thought, well, hm, in our day and age, we watch a lot of TV, we watch Netflix, Amazon video, whatever it may be, and uh, there's always new episodes coming, and so we're familiar as a culture with this idea of a new episode, a story continuing on that might be released in, in a week to come or whatever, and and you watch one episode, and it kind of leaves you on a little bit of a cliffhanger, like, I wonder what's going to happen next, and then the next week you come in and, and you pick up where you are, and in some ways that's kind of what our journey through Acts has been like. We've seen little episodes week to week of things that are going on, and each week as we've finish up we should be left with this uh this pause and then a desire to know what's next what is coming next you know this is a story the book of acts uh luke is chronicling the history of the early church and the, the acts of the apostles the acts of the holy spirit is the the young church is being established and growing in the in the region of israel and throughout Asia Minor. And so there's things that we're, we're learning and seeing every single week that are new. We're seeing God work in some, some crazy ways. And so I thought, well, here's the important thing. If you were to watch a TV show and you just went to season three, let's say, and you pulled up episode six and you just watched that episode, you might be like, who are all these people? What is going on? And how in the world did we get here? So I think it's important to give a little bit of context. So some of you may be picking up with us for the very first time this morning, and you're wondering, well, they've been working through this whole series. I wonder where they're at and what they've been learning about. So. Just to give a little bit of context into the last couple of weeks, Um, if you were to go back to uh, Acts chapter 21, we are going to have seen what we have learned as Paul has been on uh, his third missionary journey, and God has put on his heart a mission for Paul to head back to Jerusalem. So Paul has begun this journey along with some companions, and these companions were uh, leaders and representatives of many of the churches throughout the uh, region of Asia Minor, And they are traveling back to Jerusalem. Their plan is to get there uh, before the day of Pentecost, because that's when uh, the kind of the closing end of a a festival, and there will be many people there in Paul's desire, as is in every city he's gone through throughout the book of Acts, to go and to preach to the Jews the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection uh, from the dead, and, and his hope in that. And so Paul's desire is to do that in Jerusalem. And strategically thinking, he says, hey, there's going to be a lot of Jews in Jerusalem right now. So they've gone and, and they've journeyed back. And we're going to, in Acts 21, later in the chapter, we saw they arrived in Jerusalem. This whole story, we spent weeks building up to this, this journey back to Jerusalem. And finally, they've arrived. And they spend some time, they meet with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and they share the testimony of what God's been doing in their ministry to the Gentiles. And this has caused the, the church leaders and the, the Christians there in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Hey, this is awesome. We're seeing so many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're seeing God work in some magnificent ways. What an encouragement. Let's worship the Lord together. So they do that, and then kind of on the heels of that conversation, we say, Hey, you know what? They're, they're like, We've got some Christians here in Jerusalem who come from a Jewish background, and they're still zealous for the Old Testament law and their traditions. And, you know, they've heard these rumors, Paul, that you've been going around and saying that the Old Testament is no good, you're teaching against it, that we should just leave it all behind. And we kind of understand that that's not really what you're teaching, and so we have this idea why don't you participate in a Nazarite vow along with some of these other men from Jerusalem just to to show, kind of as a a point of unity, that you're not saying forsake the whole law, but uh, no, you're not relying on it for salvation. So he he agrees to do this. In the course of uh, Paul taking this Nazarite vow some Jews who were not believers came and they they were not okay with some of the things taking place. And they started mobbing and beating Paul. And this riot that kind of took place caused the Romans to pay attention to it. And they came in and they see Paul as the guy that apparently started this whole thing in their uh, perspective. So they arrested Paul. And they decided, you know what, we are going to literally beat the truth out of him, and they intended to flog him to find out why in the world there's all this chaos going on around you. And in the process of that, Paul says, hey, I am a Roman citizen. You can't really do this. So it changes the whole, the whole uh, thing that's going on. So the Romans are like, all right, well, we still need to figure out what this is all about, so why don't we handle this diplomatically? So they call a meeting. Paul, the Romans, and the Sanhedrin, which is the council that's spoken of uh, earlier in chapter 23. The Sanhedrin is made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Paul uh, gets to give a defense before the group, and he says, I am on trial for my hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, well, the Sadducees didn't believe in this, in the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees did, so this caused this huge argument. And in the midst of this argument, apparently things got violent enough that the Romans were afraid that Paul was going to be torn to shreds. Now that's, that's a meeting right there that you will never forget. And so the Romans take Paul out. And that's kind of where we pick up uh, to our passage today in verse 12 of chapter 23. It's important for us to understand that context, and we're going to go back and see some of those things again later as we read through this uh, passage and spend some time discussing it. But before we do that, let's read our passage, read what Luke has recorded for us in these verses. So Acts uh, chapter 23, starting in verse 12. Says when it was day, the Jews made a plot, and they bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat uh, more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by them, for uh, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers, and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, and they brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have put this passage before us, Lord, to teach us, to challenge us, to inform us of things. And Lord, I pray that as we spend the next uh, few minutes to study it, to talk about it, to unpack it, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would open our hearts to what we would need to learn, that we would learn more of who you are as a God, Lord, I pray that any of the distractions of our lives, we might be able to put aside for the moments that are before us, that we would have attention and focus to your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in each of our hearts to convict us of our uh, misunderstandings, our, our wrong thinking, and spur us on to greater obedience to you. I pray that you would be honored and glorified, and that truth, your truth would be presented in, in the moments to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I had uh, told a friend that I was preaching on Acts 23, verses 12 to 35, and they said, ooh, that's a tough one. There's not a whole lot there. It's kind of just a story. In some ways, he's right. There's no commands. If you remember what we just read, there's nothing that says, hey, all believers should do this, that, or the other. There's no uh, clear exhortations or encouragements to believers. Um, There's no clear doctrinal teaching, uh, as Paul would sometimes do in his letters, say this is what we should believe, this is how we should act. What we have before us from Luke is a story. We have him telling the events, and this is where we have to remember that the book of Acts is a story. Luke has written it as a historian to chronicle the events of the early church, and he's writing to, his, uh, to Theophilus uh, to let him know of what's going on. And so it could be tough to look at a passage like this and say, well, all right, well, well, what do you do with it? What do you do with a story in Scripture that doesn't seem to indicate our behavior in some way or another? How do we respond? Well, we have to remember that in Second Timothy, uh, Paul would write to Timothy and tell him that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we know that there's purpose for this passage. It's not just there for us to come together and have big church story time where we read a story and say, oh, okay, now go have a good week. There's purpose to it. It is to edify us. It is to train us. It is to equip us to do the good works that God has called before us. Now, you might ask the question, well, why would Luke, uh, why would Luke include these details? And I would say, one, I think Luke's filling in the gaps. Right? One thing that could happen is uh, Paul's in Jerusalem and perhaps we're made aware that there's some conflict and he could have skipped over some of these details and then bam, next thing he said is, hey, now Paul's in Caesarea. He could have done that and we would have been left sitting there. How did Paul get to Caesarea? When did Paul get to Caesarea? Why did Paul get to Caesarea? What on earth is going on here? Luke's filling in some of the details. And those are important to stories, right? Um, My wife would tell you that I'm not a detailed person when I tell stories. She gets kind of aggravated. She'd be like, hey, how was your day? Did anything exciting happen? I'll say something that happened. And she'd be like, so give me some more. I'm like... That's all I got. I don't know. She like so. But how did they respond? how How did you respond? What What exact words? What was their tone of voice? What was your tone of voice? Well, well, did they make any expressions? I don't know. Right? I'm like I pa- apparently I just didn't pay enough attention, and she gets kind of aggravated because she likes the details. All right? She comes from the Pilkington family. When the Pilkingtons tell stories, you sit down, grab a cup of coffee, you'll be there for a while, because okay? they are detail people. I'm not, okay? so it's a good thing Luke's telling the story and not me, because you would have had a much different tale. But I think Luke shares the details, not just because Luke's a detailed guy, not just because he's like, hey, you know what, I just want to be as thorough as possible, because right? Luke could have shared more details. He could have said, you know what, when they left in the third hour of the night, this is what it sounded like with all those soldiers, the clinking of the shields and the spears as they're walking, and you know, all their armor, and you know, the wind was gusting, and it kind of put this chill on him. Maybe Paul got goosebumps because the, the wind hit him just right, and you're like, yeah, it's not that important for the story. And Luke didn't go there. But I think Luke shares the details that he shares because Luke believes... That God's work is most clearly seen in the details. And we would agree to this, right? Think through your life, and as you look back on the events that have taken place in your life, no doubt you can look and see, God has worked in my life in in these ways. And you could chronicle details of events, people you've met, conversations you've had, where you can look back and say, yeah, God clearly worked there. I can see God working over the last few weeks, uh, some of my middle school leaders have been working with a situation with one of the students in their uh, small group. And they've come to me and they kind of shared what's going on and said, hey, we want to help. We want to help this family out. They're going through some tough times. And they started talking as, as small group leaders and with their small group and with some parents that they uh, knew were connected in some ways and saying, all right, what, what strategy could we take to help out here. And as they came and talked to me about these things, they are like, okay, you never believe it, okay? We were praying about this, like, how do we help? And that's where we wanted to set up this meeting to talk about how, what steps we could do that would like actually meet some needs, and it just so happened that that was an answer to prayer that somebody else prayed, like, just uh, hours before, and crazy, right? And then they're like, and and so we're finding these things out, and you know, God was providing for us in ways that we weren't really planning for, and so we had some opportunity to provide or help out in different ways that we normally wouldn't be able to, and and then, oh, there's some business-related things that had nothing to do with the church that happened to put us in uh, contact with uh, an organization that would be critical in helping meet the needs of this family. And they're like, God is so clearly at work here. Can't you see? Like, He's just putting everything together. Look at all the details. And they would say, what an encouragement it was to them to know that God was working in that way and they got to be part of it. But they said, we see God working in the details. What we're seeing this morning is God working in the details. We're going to see some real-life footage of God's providence. And before we jump in and talking about God's providence, I want to stop for a moment and kind of put us on the same page in what we mean when we're talking about God's providence. One, we're going to see that God is not working through miracles today. What God could have easily done is say, all right, I'm going to teleport Paul out of this situation. Pfft, done. Right? He's got." He could do that. We saw him do it uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch and stuff earlier in the book of Acts. God can do crazy things. He could have acted in a miraculous way. He didn't. When we talk about God working providentially, God is working and sovereignly ruling over the everyday experiences and working through natural means to carry out his will. That's what we mean by God's providence. And we are going to see this morning as that... You probably noticed as you read through this, it doesn't say, Luke doesn't say, and and God caused this to happen, which caused this to happen, and God was working these ways. But in the same ways that you would look back in your life and say, wow, I, I really saw God working, you didn't have some sign that showed up in your bedroom when you woke up in the morning that said, this is God, and I am working in this way right now. right? But as you look back, you can see God's work. You can see his faithfulness in the events of your life. We're seeing the same thing here, much like in the book of Esther, a whole book of the Bible where we don't see God's name mentioned one time, but we see God working to preserve and to protect his people. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, the way God is working in the details and through his providence. So let's jump in. Our first point is that the providence of God completes his will. God works through people. God works through events. God does things through the natural means. He puts people in positions to do specific things. I'm sure that you at some point have experienced that. That, wow, that was such a God thing. I'm sure we've all said that at some point or another in our lives. That that was a God thing. That I was there at that particular time to help in that particular way. Or somebody else was there to help me. What a God thing. God works in his providence ways to do that. And that's so true. God works in these um, spectacular ways. But sometimes we look at, um, tend to see that God works kind of like a genie. We think that God just is there for us to present our dreams and our wishes to, and, and that we say, hey, here's, here's what we want to see happen. Here's how we want this situation to change. And we essentially adopt this mindset that God works out providentially using his providence to work out our will. But that's not what the scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that God is always working out his will. Ephesians, Paul would write to the church in Ephesians He would say that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul doesn't say God works most things according to the counsel of his will He doesn't say that. God works some things He doesn't say that he only works things in in certain people's lives according to the counsel of his will But God works out all things according to the counsel of his will so I would say that in many ways, as you look through Scripture, we see lots of people. If you were to go back through the Old Testament, you see people such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all these people, David, Solomon, and many, many more. And what you would see in studying Scripture is that these people were not the highlight of the story, but they were characters in the story. But the hero of the story, the main focus throughout all of Scripture, wasn't Moses, it wasn't Paul, it was God. God working through those people to, to carry out his will and his desires. And I would say that each of us in this room believe in the providence of God to some degree. Otherwise, I don't think we'd pray. Why would we pray if we didn't believe that God had the... the Sovereign power and rule to take effect and answer our prayers if we believe that God wasn't able to or uh, Capable of working providentially through our lives to respond to our prayers Then why would you present them to him in the first place? Each of us to some degree believes in the providence of God now the question is how far? Do you take that? How much uh, providence do you say God really has does God work just in response to our prayers Is God working? uh, Even before we pray As we pray, we need to remember that in our prayers, sometimes what we do as sinful people is we come before God and we say, hey, here's here's my list in some ways. Here's what I want to see done. And we essentially say, this is us. And God seems to be somewhere out here. And we say, God, we want you to come in this is really what we want to see happening. God, let's, let's work in accordance to my will. But really, what prayer is there to do is to help us to grow in accordance to God's will. That God is here, and we must recognize that we are somewhere around here. That if God's working all things out according to His will, then we are the ones that need to be brought in line with God. And that's what happens through prayer. And I'm not saying it's wrong for us to present our requests and and burdens to the Lord. We should absolutely do that. The scriptures tell us we should do that. But we need to do it in a way that we are trusting God and saying, Lord, even though I might be going through this difficult time, or there's this situation that I want to see changed, I need to trust you because you might be working in a way that I'm unaware of. So while I would like to see the situation completely changed, Maybe it's your will that I stay in this situation for a period and I need to learn to trust you I need to follow you in that So we need to be careful as believers that when we look at a passage like this We don't even just come and say hey, you know what? It's easy for us to look at these 20 some verses and say look at the providential protection of of God as he protects Paul Yeah, there's a there's a murder plot Brought out against Paul. These Jews, 40 of them, they have created this assassination plan. It's going to happen tomorrow. Here's how they're going to do it. They're going to kill Paul. Okay? This terrible evil thing has come up against Paul. We could say... Wow, then God just he made it so that his nephew would hear about these things and be able to do something. He comes and tells Paul, and the information goes up the chain all the way to the Tribune, and they were able to get Paul out of there. They, look at God's providential protection. Praise God. And we should praise God, because he did providentially protect Paul. But what we need to be careful of is to not say that God's providence only influenced Paul's protection. But perhaps God's providence also put Paul in that situation where he would need to be protected. If you, This is where, looking at these 20-some verses, what we tend to do, especially with a, a narrative passage, is we look at them like this. And we kind of close ourselves off to everything else that's going on in the book of Acts throughout Scripture that's, that's taking place. And we say, what do these 20 verses have to tell us? And you look at them like this, and you start to learn these verses pretty well. But what we need to do sometimes is say, hey, step back. Instead of having a tunnel vision, we need to, we need to see the bigger picture. And as we see the bigger picture, we can start to see how God is working in different ways. right? So some of you might be sitting here and saying, Jeremy, I'm not quite sure I'm with you on the whole God working through putting Paul in that situation where you need to be protected. Well, let's look at that. Okay, I don't want to just say it and not show you why I'm saying it. If we're in Acts... We are currently in Acts chapter twenty-three, verses twelve to thirty-four. If you were to step back, and this is where I think it'd be pretty cool if we could just take our Bibles and lay them out as like a like a big sheet in front of us, so you could just kind of see things. Because sometimes when we flip, it's just we don't get that. We don't get it. All right. But if you were to go back to Acts chapter twenty-one, I, I've talked to you about what was going on. Paul's working on his journey back to Rome. Well. As they were journeying, not to Rome, I'm sorry, Jerusalem. While they were journeying back to Jerusalem, they would stop. Their journey was much different than our journeys, right? Some of you guys may have traveled 20 plus miles to get to church this morning. It took you a half hour, 40 minutes. That's great. Well, when they would journey, they wouldn't be able to do that. They wouldn't be able to hop on a plane and travel around the world in a matter of hours. It took months. This journey for them to get back to Jerusalem was a, a journey. It really was a journey. And so they would make many stops. And as they would stop, they'd find believers. And they would spend some time with them and fellowship with them, sometimes for weeks at a time. And many of these uh, believers, when they heard that Paul was wanting to go back to Jerusalem, would encourage him and challenge him Why are you going back? Don't you know the only trouble's coming? Because they know that as Paul has traveled throughout Asia Minor, he'd go and he'd preach to the Jews, and the Jews just did not receive that message very well. Paul was beaten, he was stoned within like an inch of his life, he was chased out of towns, he's been arrested, blah, blah, blah. Nothing good seems to come of that. And now you want to go back to like the Jewish headquarters of the world? During like one of their big festivals? What's wrong with you? Don't you see that only trouble is going to be there? And they say, Don't do it, Paul. Paul says, No, God is calling me to go. I'm going to go. Well, one of the men they come across, his name was Agabus. Kind of a. I don't know that I'd want that name. Okay? But his name's Agabus. And Agabus prophesied. He took Paul's belt and he said, that Whoever owns his belt, when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. Well,. Now, if we're looking at all the things that are in front of us, within their context, we see that just a couple chapters before, Paul was in the Senate, he was warned, this is going to happen. So you have to ask the question then, is Paul's situation a surprise to God? No. No. No, it absolutely wasn't. Well, if you look at the last verse of last week, chapter, or verse 11 of chapter 23. Paul has already had his meeting with the Sanhedrin. He's been taken back out after almost getting torn to shreds. And what does it say? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So you must testify also in Rome. So now we know something. We're looking at just a little bit of context here and we have learned That God's plan, whether it's at this point, if we're looking chronologically, we say, okay, at the very least, we know that God's future plan for Paul is that he is going to be in Rome. He is going to testify in Rome. He is going to tell people about Jesus Christ in Rome. That's We know that's going to happen. So if God says, you're going to do this, I think it's safe to say it's going to happen. Right? We can agree on that. But we also know that God has also said beforehand through uh, Agabus... These hardships are going to come. So we could ask the question, was God just acting in response to these evil things that were going to take place? Or I wonder if God wasn't using those evil things, the plots of the Jews, their, uh, their hatred of the gospel message and Paul's ministry, that he would use that to cause an uprising where Paul would be taken into Roman custody. And now you're starting to see, wait a minute, if you're Paul, you're probably thinking, if I'm supposed to go to Rome, but right now I'm not anywhere close to Rome, but I've just been taken into Roman custody hmm, let's see what's going to happen here. And you start to see how God is working in these ways. We have a tendency to think that God doesn't work providentially through the evil things that happen to us, through the bad experiences, the bad circumstances of our lives. But that's just not true. Even if you were to think of your own life, I'm sure you could look back and say there was an experience or multiple experiences that in the moment of it, it was a terrible, terrible thing. You hated it. You wanted it to be over. It was not a good situation. But now that you have some perspective, you look back on it and say it was for the best. It was hard. I wanted it to end. But now I see how God was working in that to bring me to where I am today. It was for the best. I'm thankful for it, in a sense. And you start to realize that maybe God does work through the evil things that happen to us. For example, uh, from Scripture. Because it's one thing for me to say, hey, look, at your own life. And it's more important for me to say, hey, look at the Bible, okay? Um, That's just what pastors are supposed to do. It's an important thing. I want you to take your Bible chronology and go all the way back to Genesis. This is just one example of many, many, many. Okay? In Genesis, near the end of Genesis, we, we meet this dude, and his name is Joseph, right? And you guys are familiar with the story of Joseph. The coat of many colors, now, he was the favored child, he got sold, blah, 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 went to Egypt, you know, yes, okay? But if we were to look at that story and pay a little bit of attention to the details that are given in the story, let's see what we can learn, right? In Genesis, before Joseph kind of even comes on the scene, he has this older brother. His older brother's name is Reuben. Okay, what Reuben did is Reuben actually defiled his father 's marriage bed, which cost him his birthright and in their their customs and, and traditions of the time, that gave um, uh, Jacob the right to give that uh, birthright to whichever son that he desired, and he gave it to Joseph. There was a bad thing that happened okay? he gave it to Joseph, who was the firstborn of Rachel and <clears throat> What happens then is Joseph is given this responsibility as kind of a manager over his father's household. So his task, his duty, was to actually look over his brothers and report back to dad and say, hey, their work's going well or work's not going well, right? And so we sometimes look at it and say, well, Joseph was a little bit of a tattletale. Okay, well, Joseph was also kind of doing his job, All right. Well, on one of his trips out to the field to see how that work was doing so he could report back to dad, Brothers see him coming, and they're like, you know what? I'm kind of done with this guy. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. They're like, well, okay, maybe we won't kill him. Let's not do that. We'll just throw him in a pit. So they do that. Another evil thing that's taken place. While he's in this pit, some traders are coming by on their way to Egypt, and they're like, ha-ha, why don't we stand to profit from some of this? Let's sell him. Heave him out of the pit? Sell him. Imagine being sold by your siblings. Can you wrap your head around that? So Paul then, Joseph then, um, is on his way to Egypt with these traitors. He gets to Egypt and he's sold again to the house of Potiphar as a slave. And he's put in in charge of all Potiphar's household except for his wife, where he is later then uh, falsely accused of attempted rape of Potiphar's wife, which lands him in prison. Another bad, evil thing that's taken place. While he's in prison, the scriptures say that the Lord is with him and he prospered there. And he grew up and took some leadership in the prison, and he came into contact with these two guys, the cupbearer and the baker. Oh, yeah, we're remembering this, right? He interprets their dreams, the cupbearer goes back to service to, to Pharaoh. Some years pass, and Pharaoh has some dreams, and the cupbearer's like, I re- This kind of happened to me. I know a guy. All right? Let me go call him up, and he gets Joseph up there, and Joseph interprets uh, Pharaoh's dreams. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. You guys are familiar with the story, right? And Pharaoh says, wow, what a genius. Clearly, we're going to put you in charge. So Pharaoh puts um, Joseph in charge of this whole plan to store up during the seven years of plenty. So that when the seven years of famine come, they, they actually have food, you know. And the famine is so bad that who shows up in Egypt? His brothers, his brothers come and kind of fast forward through all that stuff. Um, eventually, they all are brought to Egypt. Joseph's whole family brought to Egypt. They settle in Goshen. Down the road, uh, Jacob passes away, and the brothers are all fearful. Like, well, what's going to happen now? Joseph's going to remember what he did, and he's going to be—he's going to be mean to us. So let's lie to him and tell him the dad said that he needs to forgive him, forgive us. So they do that, and what is Joseph's response? Joseph doesn't respond and say, Oh, okay. He says, Listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, all those evil things that we've looked at, those bad things that have happened, false accusations, being sold, all these things that if they were happening to us, we'd be like, What on earth? Why is this happening? This is ridiculous. And it is, right? Those are bad, evil things. But he says, God meant it for good. He didn't say, well, hey, God used it for good. Like, God saw this thing going to place, like, well, I think we could use that. God meant it for good. Why? So that they would be preserved. And his family would become the nation of Israel. And through the nation of Israel, who would show up? But Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. These evil things, God worked through them to put Joseph in a position of leadership that God would carry out and complete his will. And sometimes the same things are happening in our lives today. God is going to put some bad experiences before us. God has put Paul in some pretty bad experiences. But it is to work out God's will. And that's where we need to change our thinking. Change our mindset from the idea that we are at the center of the universe to God is. God's will. God is the greatest good. Our comforts aren't, but God is the greatest good. So when those hard times come, we can stand and say, oh... I can trust the Lord. I can trust the Lord. So we, we learn that the providence of God, really, it confronts our comforts. It confronts our comforts because we aren't the center of the universe. The evil things, the bad things, the bad experiences that we uh, are presented with in our life aren't things that slipped past God, that, you know, he's juggling all these things and, you know, he happened to drop this one bad thing that he, uh, how did God let that one through? And we take this idea and we go before God and say, Get me out of this situation. How could this bad thing happen? Fix it. Fix it. But when we understand the providence of God, we can understand that, hey, even when those bad things come, those bad things come, the evil things that people do to us, the the terrible circumstances that we may endure in our lives, those things become stamped, sealed, and delivered from God. Nothing sneaks past God. God rules sovereignly over all things. So that means that we understand that our comforts are not the end-all be-all. God is not a means to an end in our comfort. But we need to adopt the mindset, change in our thinking that God is the end-all be-all. God is the greatest good. Even if that means that in this life we are going to suffer greatly, that doesn't mean that God's not good. If you were to read the testimonies of people, missionaries, Christians all around the world who have been martyred, killed for their faith... The reason they can do that is because they have understood God is the greatest good. Do whatever you want to me. Because God is good. So if you stood before you and had your life on the line, and you would be, you, all you had to do was deny Christ to live, you could stand and say, I will not deny Christ. Because to lose my life is to gain. This is not the end. God is the end. To become more like God. To experience His blessings in a deeper and more rich way. To see God for who He is. The completion of God's will. We are called to that story. That does not mean that we are going to be comfortable. God is going to call us, even as Americans, with all the comforts and the freedoms that we have, to do things that are uncomfortable. You're going to step out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to address situations with family, with friends, with people in this church, with neighbors that are hard to deal with. They are awkward. They are not fun. Maybe someone's going to have to address one of those with you. Don't complain about it. But trust God. He might be working through those bad experiences to carry out His will, just like I'm sure many of us have experienced in the past. Yet how blinded can we become when we're there again and it's almost like we forget what's happened in the past and say, what's going on? What is happening? But trust God. See, his methods are, are often different than ours. We would, honestly, if you were in uh, this situation, you had the role of playing God, you would probably, and like uh, what is it Bruce Almighty, he just clicks yes to all the answered prayers because well, that's just the easiest thing to do. we would probably be like, hey, let's just zap Paul out of there. I'm God, I can just zap him out. But God has chosen to work through these different ways. And, and I've got to be honest with you. God's plan here was not not a very good thing for Paul. Good in the sense of comfortable and pleasurable. Imagine being beaten, having people plotting assassination attempts against you, being taken into custody, being falsely accused of things. We would sit there and be like, I can't catch a break. What's going on? But God was working through that. God's timing is different. Right? We want things now. Little kids. Okay? You have little kids. I don't have little kids. But I was a little kid. Alright? And I remember when I was a little kid. And you know something good's coming at the end of the day? How does that day go? It is the longest day of your life. It's never going to get there. And you start complaining to mom and dad. Well, can't we do it now? Can't I have it now? And they're like... Just wait, just wait It'll come, be patient And as a kid that drives you nuts Well here's the deal We are all little kids to God Because we go before God and we're like Come on God now, why aren't you moving faster Won't you bring this about now It's just our, our timing is different It's not the end of the day, it's maybe two years It's maybe five years And we're like come on God now And God's saying Wait, just chill Trust me My timing is different. And on the flip side, sometimes God might be like, okay, dude, you need to get moving. Okay? You lost that job, and you're like, well, I wasn't ready to lose that job yet. And God's like, well, I was ready for you to lose that job because I want to put you somewhere else. And we're sitting there like, I wasn't prepared for this. I wasn't prepared for that medical diagnosis. I wasn't prepared for you fill in the blank. And God moves you a little bit faster than you'd like to move. God's timing is oftentimes different than ours. But we need to still trust Him in that. See, the providence of God doesn't give us excuse to kind of sit back, kick back, and relax, and just assume that God's going to just do everything. He, it calls for our action. If you look at our passage, Paul doesn't find out about this murder attempt. He doesn't sit back in his cell and say, oh, Son of my uh, uh, sister, why do you worry about these things? Uh, why did you even take the time to come over here and tell me? Don't you know that God's in control of everything? He's going to take care of it. Don't Watch the game with me. It's not what Paul does. What does Paul do? He says, hey, hey centurion. Called by title, imagine that. You're only called by your title. Whatever. Hey, centurion, come here. Um, can you take this kid... Uh, to the tribune and tell him that he has something to tell To, to inform him of okay, okay, so he puts processes in motion Now, here's the deal Paul had no idea What the, what the response was going to be The tribune could have said Okay, great That would mean Paul's dead That would mean I didn't do it Which means problems solved Okay, well let's just move ahead with as planned I'll take him down there Paul doesn't know but he puts processes in action, and he takes some action. And we, as believers, just because God is provident, just because God is so, uh, sovereign over all things, doesn't mean we sit back and relax and wait for God to do some miraculous thing and say, "All right, God," I'm like there's going to be this this plate, this golden plate coming down from heaven with these instructions on it to say, "Do this," thus says the Lord. Like that would be nice, but that's not how God works. Take some action. Do something. Okay, in Proverbs 16, it talks about how uh, man plans his days, but the Lord directs his steps, right? Move! Do something! If God slams the door in your face, that's fine, you weren't supposed to go through that one. Turn to the next one. Do something. God's going to direct. God is going to move. We need to act. God's providence calls for our action. Why? Because God works through the events of humans The events of our history, the events of our lives, God is working through it. If all humanity just sat back and did nothing, God has chosen to work through us. He's put us in the game. Okay, so that doesn't mean sit back. If you're in the game, you do something. Okay, in the world of sports, if you get put in the game and you just stand there and do nothing, God bless this kid that was on my uh, team a couple years ago. You put him in the game and that pretty much is all he did. You had no idea. Well, what do you want to do? You want to take them out of the game because they're not helping. They're not doing anything. God's put you in. Do something. Act. John Piper. I just happened to stumble across this last night, and I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. All right. Um, if you're taking notes, you can write down uh, in the vertical line A P T A T. Aptat. If you I don't know if you want to say it. Um, he talks about these things. He says the A is is admit. All right, when we're doing things for the Lord, we have to recognize that in and of ourselves, there's nothing. I say, Jeremy, Jeremy, I cannot get up and preach this sermon. I cannot do it in a way that is going to be effective and, and meaningful for the church on my own. I can't do it. I'm stuck. Admit it. Admit it. John 15, we can do nothing apart from Christ. You can't do anything. You're serving in children's ministry. You're serving as a, as a host for a, a mom village table. You're serving in student ministry. You're serving as a small group leader. Maybe you're an elder. Who, you name the ministry that you're involved in. You can't do it. Admit it. Humble yourself. I can't do it. But then pray. Lord, I, I can't. But you can. You can Help me, Lord. Help me get up in front of the church and be able to speak clearly. Help me not to shake myself off the the stage because I'm scared to death. Help me to to stick to the, the truth that you have taught me. Help me to minister to these people who are going through a difficult time. Help me to speak truth. Help me to, Lord, you have to do it. Pray. And then trust Trust in the promises of God. The scriptures are full of promises. Cling to those promises. That he will act. He will do. He will provide. He will And, and trust in those promises. Don't just say, hey, I acknowledge that. I believe it. But cling to it. Trust it. It's like when I was a, a little kid, all right? And it just, just popped into my head. It's like when my dad takes me to Sunday school class. I don't know these Sunday school teachers. Quite honestly, I'm scared of them. No offense to you Sunday school teachers out there, but I would have been scared of you, okay? And dad says, hey, you got to go to Sunday school. And I'm like, no! So what did I do as a little kid? Right on dad's leg. Because, well, then he has to go to Sunday school. And I'm more okay with that. That's what we do with the promises of God. You cling to the promises of God. Don't just say, oh, okay, yeah. No, you cling to the promise of God. Trust it. Believe it. Live your life in light of it. Believe that God is going to follow through. And then he says, the A, that's act. You admit where you're, you can't do it, you surrender it to the Lord, and then you do it. You do something. And you trust that God is going to work, that God is going to do what God can only do. And then you thank Him. You thank Him like crazy for how faithful He is, for all that He's doing. For helping you to minister to that family. For helping you to reach that kid. When you hear their story of how they're learning to trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. I can't do that. I can't change hearts, but you can. Thank you for using me. Thank you for letting me be a part of their story. Thank you for helping me uh, be a welcoming face to visitors who come to our church. So they can come and feel welcomed. Thank you, Lord. But don't just sit back. Do something. And lastly, we learn that the providence of God it champions peace and confidence. It champions peace and confidence. I admire Paul. You you read the things that are happening with Paul and if there were any of us, most of us, there are some of you that I'd be like, dude, you would be just fine. For sure. But many of us, we'd be like, freaking out what is going on god you called me to go to rome and now i'm in prison and these people want to kill me what in the world paul doesn't freak out he's saying, okay all right son of my uh sister go ahead and go share this news paul doesn't have to freak out because paul trusts in the providence of god paul trusts the god's control And so he can embrace those that come. Before he went to Jerusalem, he says, listen, I am ready to die for the sake of Christ. So that when that hardship comes, you can say, I can trust the Lord. I can glorify him in this. When that that great scenario in your life comes, you get that promotion. or you, You enter that next stage of life, and you're so excited, you can say, bless the Lord. That no matter what, we can have peace and confidence that the circumstances that we face in our lives are not some surprise to God. They're not out of His control. See, we don't serve a God that's frantically responding to the evil things that are happening. As if the world's crumbling around Him and He's like, ah, right? We serve a God who is good. We serve a God who is powerful. We serve a God who is in control. And that gives us peace. That despite what's going on, we can say, God is God is good. This has been a sermon that throughout this week I have come to learn was more, probably more for me than any of you. And those are the tough ones. Because God's working in your life. God's challenging you. And even just last night I'm, I'm talking with Bree and there's things going on in our life and we're like, I, I got no answer. I don't know. And isn't it interesting how in God's providence He would have it be that this week I would have the responsibility and the task to preach on His providence with the events that are going on in our life right now that I would be the first person to learn about these things. That I would have to say, alright, if I'm going to stand up on Sunday and preach it, I need to believe it. I need to own it. And as I sit and I talk to my wife and, and we're looking at where things are and we're like, dude, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I couldn't tell you. And you wonder, God, what on earth are you doing? Why, what, when, how? And you just frantically feel like you're grabbing for anything. And yet God says, Listen, I am in control. Trust me. Trust me. And I had to sit there, and, and I can tell you, last night as I'm talking to my wife, I'm like, Yeah, dude, like... I'm stressed. I don't know. i got to be honest in that. But you can also have some peace and say, God's bigger. God's put us here. God's given us this. How foolish would we be to not trust him in it? We need to trust him. And even though we may not always know what that next step is going to be, what that next thing is going to look like, We've got a ministry fair. Some of you guys are maybe thinking about serving the a ministry. You're like, I'm scared. I don't know what that's going to look like. Trust God. Just go have a conversation. Who knows? Follow God. Trust Him. And I say that because I had to say that to myself. Follow God and trust Him. He is in control. And that's why we can have confidence. Not because we don't know or whatever, but because if God's brought you here, He'll bring you through. If God wants you to, Bree always jokes and says, if I was born to uh, be shot, I'll never be hung. It sounds so morbid, right? I'm like, what's wrong with you? But her point is, her point is like, All right, listen, if God's calling me to something, that's what he's going to provide for. That's where he's going to lead. That's where he's going to equip. That's where he is going to be good. Trust him. So have confidence. I don't know what all you guys are going through right now. I know there's people in here who are just rejoicing. Right now is a great time in life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's brought you to a good season. Use that good season to praise the Lord. Use that good season as a testimony to other people of God's goodness. For some of you, you are in the toughest time of your life right now. God's put you there. Find peace. Find confidence in that he's got you. Trust him. There's great peace in surrendering it over to the Lord.